All right. Hey, welcome everybody and welcome to our Monday together. We're going through it together. It's going to be a great week somehow for someone, someplace, hopefully. Um, I wonder sometimes in my free time about a whole bunch of things. I like to consider the how and the why things work before I accept that things just simply work. And I try to wonder about helpful things, of course, most of the time. It's never good wondering about those bad things too much. And that's pretty easy to do. But why are all these hate speech laws being passed? And probably my favorite that I've seen recently, why is King Charles being called on to aid in the fight for alien disclosure? Wow, Fox News or Netflix? Which one's real? Which one's not? But my main wondering point at the moment is, where are mortgage rates going? Now, I know rates drive house prices, interest rates, basically drive where house prices are going to go. And personally, in my business, I make more money when people fall in love with the property market. So I want interest rates to go down. So yeah, there's a commercial tilt to my interest here as well. Yes. But this is also an incredibly fascinating journey when I just feel like digging a little bit deeper around how things work. There's always the simpler, though, the more mainstream answers that you can find with what most economists will say and what most journalists will write about in mainstream media too. It's definitely what you're probably going to learn about in your textbooks. Now, I did an economics degree once myself. It took me ages to finish it, partly because I was a slow learner. But here's what I was taught about interest rates. When economic activity slows down, a country's central bank may reduce interest rates to stimulate borrowing. Lower borrowing costs might encourage companies to borrow more because it's cheaper, right? And they might invest in more efficient production methods, borrow more, buy more sophisticated plant and equipment, or they might hire additional staff and set off a bit of a wage inflation thing. As workers gain skills, of course, their earnings will often increase, which then helps alleviate economic stagnation as everyone goes out and you know, they feel wealthy, so they spend a bit more. But as the economy strengthens, inflation might occur. This monetary phenomenon known as inflation is typically characterized by rising prices and increased production costs. Everything just gets so expensive and things just kind of slow down at some point. Out there, you might have heard that the only cure to higher prices is higher prices. But this is what the Reserve Bank of New Zealand here has done over the past 12 to 18 months. They've increase the cost of what many of us have as our biggest expense extremely fast over a very short period of time. And so higher borrowing costs like this, well, at a commercial level, it could cause firms to invest less, and it could force them also to reduce their workforce, as I record this in August 2023. So two useful truths can come out of this sort of mainstream thought that I just rattled off there. The central banks indirectly influence our mortgage rates by what they do in the short term with their official cash rate or their official interest rate or Fed funds rate. So what they do affects the short term and collectively what they say they will do will affect the longer term interest rates. Secondly, we can also gauge how the economy is going to perform by checking in to see how many people are working at the moment. If the unemployment rate seems to increase, though, if it gets too high, it can signal 
that maybe there's a need for the central bank to make interest rates lower and therefore maintain consistent economic growth to restore confidence in the financial system. Of course, ironically, they create more instability in the process. Now, there's more to it than all of that, of course, but you kind of get the idea. It's far more interesting going beyond that mainstream perspective, though, I think. Some of the areas that I'm keen to learn more about currently, though, are trends and capital flows between countries and how that's changing at the moment. Uh, I think it's interesting how central banks are falling more in line with initiatives that are clearly started right up at the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS. I think central bank-issued digital currencies are really, really interesting. Um, how the euro-dollar system works and how it risks making the U.S. Federal Reserve look impotent right now. And there's this one as well. Well, what happens when the countries who traditionally supplied cheap credit to the U.S. start to explore other solutions of where to put their money? It's not just another brick in the wall at this rate, but things like this are all happening all at the same time. So, how does this influence my mortgage rate? Well, in a new world with more centralized government, it's time, I think, to start microdosing on macro, macroeconomics, of course. So if you are proud of your precious paradigms and you follow the experts you respect, I get it. I hate being wrong, too. It's a pain having to relearn your stuff after you thought you figured it out. But it makes sense. There's so much change going on that, of course, we have to look in different places and we have to think about these other voices that sound a bit crazy, but it actually makes a bit of sense. Take the blue pill, take the red pill, doesn't really matter to me. Keep your head down, though, work hard, support the latest thing, and I'm sure you'll be super happy. But Hugh Henry, who is he? Hugh Henry is a former hedge fund manager. He can skate, and he lives on a tropical island. He's a well-respected voice and a personality in the YouTube and FinX space, and I'll underline that word personality here. In the first part of this episode, I start off commenting on the fluff on Hugh's microphone, but after that, I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Before we start, though, over on YouTube, you can catch the full episode out now. Otherwise, I'll share the rest of this episode here next week. Have an awesome weekend, everybody. Let's get started. You're listening into the Everyday Investor Podcast, passive investing, property investment, managed funds, and crypto. If you're an everyday person wanting to build new wealth for the new world that you're heading into, then this podcast is for you. I'm Darcy Angaro, your host. I'm a qualified financial advisor, but I'm still learning how to invest better and teach others how to do the same. I talk with guests and cover a range of topics designed to get you to think for yourself here. But please keep in mind, this can't be considered financial advice. Be sure to do your own research here and seek qualified advice of your own before making investment decisions. If you want more information, check out the show notes in your podcast player and make sure that you've subscribed to YouTube also. Then follow The Everyday Investor on all social media channels. The NZ Everyday Investor Podcast receives support from the following partners. Easy Crypto, the safe and easy way to buy and sell crypto in New Zealand. Guerrilla Technology, increasing business success through innovative and strategic IT solutions. Ungaro & Co. Financial Advice, financial advice for everyday people building everyday wealth. Hope you enjoy the show. Let's get started.
Are you holding a little dog there? Is that a microphone? That is the microphone. No, no. Okay. <laughs> Are you just happy to see me? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Cool. Okay. Hugh Henry, the acid capitalist. Thank you for joining me today. Absolute pleasure. Let's rock and roll. Okay. Now I have been bumping up against you every now and then on, on YouTube. I've been um, catching little whiffs of Hugh Henry and some of your insights have, have kind of challenged my understanding, which is still growing around how the global markets work, how financial institutions work overseas and all that sort of stuff. So I want to start off with the Federal Reserve. And um, I think many people have views around the Federal Reserve that it is kind of like the puppet master and that when it prints, markets go up. But are they really the puppet master or are they just Muppety bureaucrats. What's what's your view on the Fed? Um, Muppety bureaucrats. I like that. <laughs> and then your interaction, we were bumping up against each other. I thought we were going yeah. into grinder grinder world. But... I know. Well, it's your it's your microphone, Hugh. It's really putting me off. <laughs> <laughs> I can't win. Um, so to, to answer your point, it it's it's remarkable um, the high esteem that the Fed is held um, in by the, the very high upper echelons of US money management. Um, I had the pleasure over the weekend, I was catching up on some uh, YouTube interviews with the joint CIOs at, at Bridgewater. Um, and they just have, they have deference for the Fed. They, they really believe this is, this, this is controlled by them. Um, maybe they're right. You know, I don't have a license <laughs> on the answers, but um, I think the biggest challenge on on that belief is, you know, give us a give us a good example of when of a noble uh, adventure by the Federal Reserve and an intervention set to, you know, to recalibrate the rate of growth in the fear that if, if it wasn't recalibrated, we'd have an inflation problem. You know, um, my memory goes back at least 25, if not 35 years. And it's really hard. There was a the, the Greenspan Fed, I think it was 1992 prematurely um, or just at the right point raised rates modestly and the stock market went sideways there were there were a couple of financial accidents Orange County um, there were a few defaults um, but by and large the Fed had taken the steam out of a perhaps an overheating economy and the next year the uh, financial risk assets were off to the races. Um, that's the last time I kind of would, would argue they were the right side of history. Some might. Um, I'm willing to contend that um, the intervention at the end of March 2009 um, was a break from um, a hard money rhetoric that mm. we're at a point where um, people forget it now, but Citigroup, Citigroup Travelers was the JP Morgan of its age, if we go back 15 years ago, largest financial behemoth, most respected. Um, it was bankrupt. It was trading in, you know, in cents on the dollar. And the Fed had a choice. Um, the system had gone digital. It was either going to zero, it was breaking, or they had the chance to reset it and, you know, let it let it come back. And they, they chose the latter. Um, but they... They used the camouflage of, of language, I believe. You know, they used this this um, quantitative easing, and and perhaps later we'll discuss that I have misgivings in terms of what that actually is. It just a, a groovy slogan? Does it actually infer money printing? Mm, question mark. Mm. 
Okay. Well, that, that is kind of like ultimately where I'm keen to go with, with my, with, with that question actually is does QE does, does that equal money printing? Does that equal asset price inflation? And therefore does that equal consumer price inflation? Like, is it, again, it's like a variation of that first question. Is it the fed that is actually causing inflation and can they actually control the dog or is the, the tail just going to be wagged by the dog? Yeah. And, and obviously it's, it's complex, but let's have a go. Um, yeah. I think there are, there are three components to it. Yeah. Um, the, so the first component, the classic, the orthodox definition of money printing is a bank extending credit. You, know, you go, they grant you a mortgage and they pass, I don't know, $3 million into your account. And it's digital money. It's a digital ledger that those dollars didn't exist before. They're in your account. And then you pass them on to the, the seller of the property. Yeah. Uh, quantitative easing um, is, I believe, seeking to um, encourage, foster uh, influence, make, it, make, make that decision happen, mm. ha- happen more often so that it makes a difference. Um, it does so in that if we simplify it, there are three economic agents. There's the Fed, um, there's me, I own, a, I own a treasury, and there's my private bank. I sell the treasury security to the Federal Reserve, and immediately my, the deposits at my bank are increased by the sale, net sale proceeds. Um, for the private sector bank, um, Again, it runs, this is banking, so, uh, this is finance, it's all about ledgers, T-accounts. Um, the liability, which is to say my, my deposits have increased. Yeah. So what happens is they get a corresponding increase in their assets, yeah. um, which would be reserves with the central bank. Okay, so, so now the, the, the private bank and banks essentially have three assets that are very, they're like a very simple hedge fund. Um, and the three assets are loans to you and I and to corporations. Um, they can choose uh, to own treasuries, which are effectively loans to the U.S. government. Yeah. And then this third thing, which has really come and come to prominence in the last fifteen years, um, more so than the past, which is res- those reserves with the central bank. So in this instance, the reserves with the central bank have increased, and. And I believe the, the, the hope, the desire of quantitative easing is that the banks kind of look at this asset and they go, yeah, really, you know, and, you know, back 15 years ago, the return on a reserve deposit account with the central bank was kind of like nothing. Yeah. And so the hope is you're diluting their balance sheet, you're, you're diluting the return on their assets. And so you're hoping that they're either going to, uh, buy more treasuries, or even better, the home run is if they um, if they extend new credit. So I think yeah. of quantitative easing as being latent, latent money printing. You're, yeah. you're providing the you're effectively providing the alcohol. And you say saying get drunk on me. Um, That's right. The great problem, and and I wrote a paper on this. The um, the how was I can't even remember what it was called the awakening of chaos, the dawn of chaos, um, and I was trying to. I was trying to add to the vernacular of inflation and Milton Friedman's great contribution. You know, he, he maintained that inflation is, is and is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon, which is to say it's that bank extending you, you know, the new loan. 
Uh, I believe it's also a psychological phenomenon. And the mm. psychological phenomenon was that, you know, the city groups et al were um, drunk and hung over yeah. post uh, the travails of the crash of 08. And so the Fed comes in with all this alcohol and they're like, yeah, brother, you know, like hair, hair of the dog. Yeah. Uh, even hair of the dog, but come on, you know. Um, and so um, have loans grown? Yes. You know, has it been um, way beyond, if you will, nominal GDP, which might be a frontier to assess and determine uh, just how quickly money is being printed? Um, not really. And indeed, if you were an alien, if you came in and you didn't know anything about what had passed in the last 20 odd years, yeah. you'd find that M2, you know, the, the wide common definition of bank deposits in the US, I think has compounded at a rate of 6% per annum since the year 2000. Right. Kind of boring, you know, and yet we've had massive, you know, asset bubbles. We've got asset prices or asset ratios to GDP, which are unprecedented. Yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of feel like the answer rests elsewhere. OK, well, I want to get into that that elsewhere, but just to make sure I, I'm really fully getting this, what you're basically saying is that um, there's a few places where that money could have ended up. Uh, the It could have ended up to us in the form of loans, in the form of credit, perhaps increased productivity through regional bank lending, something like that. It could end up with the government, could end up with the central bank. But effectively, it, it ended up just doing nothing. It's like latent credit. It's um, the table was set, but no one was showing up, that sort of thing. And ultimately, it's a psychological problem. And I've heard this before, that inflation is it's not just about money supply. That's just really just loading the weapon. It's about the psychology of, of shooting the weapon. And right now, and probably for a while now, the banks have been, it certainly feels like they've been tightening the screws in terms of their risk appetite. So... I guess what you're saying so far makes a lot of sense that there's very little incentive for for the banks to extend credit is that right yeah yeah no indeed that, that's what i'm saying um th there was a a metaphor i was using quite a while back which was it's as though we're living in an igloo why an igloo because you know um the banks have been conservative it's been if you will they've been frigid cold you know um this, they've they've not been partying um and and the igloo is um has been doused in paraffin yeah. and, and we're really, really damn cold. Uh, yeah. But I keep like you and I, I keep passing you the, the lighter. I'm like, mm, you go, oh, you go, you procrastination, procrastination. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, again, later and later perhaps, but um, um, I have a hypothesis that the country that started quantitative easing in 1990 or so, Japan, the, the country that's on the 27th iteration. I mean, there's a clue. Look, they've tried it 27 times. It didn't work and they keep changing it. Maybe it just doesn't work. You know, what are the chances that the 28th time will work? Uh, but if you will, they've, there's a lot of metaphorical gasoline swishing around the Japanese banking igloo. And what if the, the brothers just went, you know, maybe that's what Dolly Yen's telling us, but you know. Well, yeah. Do you want to unpack that a little bit more? So, effectively, what you're what you're alluding to is that this isn't necessarily a phenomenon that starts and finishes, and the story is fully told in the U.S. This is more of a a globalization piece going on. Is is that right? Well, for sure it is. Okay, so let's go global. Yeah. Um, I want. I want to mean. I want to kind of again. Uh, so the there's a lot of attention given to the the dollar reserve currency status. Um, but 
there's never really been a, a reserve currency, you know, like sterling, which would be the nearest comparable, uh, the late 19th century. Um, it, it was its proximity or it was uh, the confidence that investors had that you could redeem it for commodities. So it was, it was actually, we were on a, we were on a commodity collateral monetary creation system. And I want to say that, um, today we're not on, obviously we're not on an, on a gold or silver collateral system, but I believe treasuries have, are are essentially the collateral. And so this is going to allow us to take the leap uh, away from sovereign dollar creation, um, to offshore non-sovereign dollar creation. And it is simply a fact that if you present a good collateral, what is deemed to be riskless collateral, namely um, US Treasury bills, and sometimes with a bit of longer tenor, that um, overseas banks will extend you credit um, and and almost with no haircut. Um, And that is money creation. Outside of the US system. Yeah, Uh, and, and it goes unrecorded. I guess it gets recorded when it um, when there's a transaction which has an impact on U.S. deposits, um, sure. but I think it's largely unrecorded, and it's largely the factor which has imbued um, asset price inflation. I think there's first of all the eurodollar system. Um, is dark and mysterious and so it lends itself to bodacious presumptions on the macro world but hey you why why not i i did a a great show the asset asset capitalist show last week with bob elliott who was you know formerly one of you know ray dalio's kind of gurus um was kind of responsible for the fx bucket there in the all weather fund and and macro is all about um an awareness and understanding of previous previous macro cycles it's not that many there's really not that many you know i mean right. if you had an ai model you could really wrap it quite quickly okay. uh, and, and and indeed charles kinderberger mania's panics and crisis um is like the bible of, of that system right okay um but we were talking about so we, we kind of know it you go looking for trace elements in charts, long-term charts, where, where there's been a, a disturbance to the price series, and then you you kind of fantasize. Um, I mean, I was I was looking at the British sterling, the cable rate versus the dollar um, today, and you, you look at that, and so from a chart perspective, it's it's just grotesquely bad. You know, it, it has rallied from from almost parity. Uh, to 130, but they're very clear indications. I mean, FX is all about, it's partly all about charts and trying to draw out the the emotions and, and gut feelings of the, the traders. Um, but there's a clear overhead resistance where it's trading. There's a clear downtrend on it. They're both coinciding. And it, the stream just, it, this chart screams at you, we're going back to parity. Okay, and that, that's just a damn uh, chart interpretation. But then you look at the UK, and and all the Anglo-Saxon satellites orbiting the U.S. have a radically different um, mortgage market 
you know, pretty much everyone gets fixed on mortgages for two years. Um, and that's certainly the case in the UK. It's not the case in America. I mean, the, the, we're having a remarkably complex period of uh, Fed tightening because um, the private sector fixed everything at like 2% in 2020. Yeah, yeah they're they, immune. For yeah. 30 years, not two years, 30 years. And the Fed's yeah. like, is pressing the, the nuclear bomb is like, boom, 5% interest rates. It's not working. Yeah. Nothing's happening. Like, go again. Yeah. Boom, 5.25. Nothing. I don't know. Boom, go again. Five and a half. And you know, we're getting to the point where you were like, because you'd expect someone to blow up. And the private sector's like, no problem here. <laughs> you know. But of course, with the, the fetch downgrade, there's always a problem. Yeah. And you know the weird thing about the US um, uh, cycle is the most exposed agent is the government. You know, they yeah. they never they never fixed for thirty years. They were issuing the two year, and now I'm like, you mean we're paying five percent? You mean you know our interest payments to GDP? We're about to hit a trillion dollars with three percent of GDP. Yeah. I'm like, mad. You know, like we might have to rein it in a bit. So anyway. Um, yeah. But in, in, in the UK, so there we are, and we're looking for, we saw a chart, very long-term chart, a chart which just kind of, um, it, it warns, it's foreboding of, of kind of not very good things. And then you know that, you know, this um, this mortgage market, you Bank of England policy or Bank of Australia or over in New Zealand and in Canada, they've been pressing the button and nothing happens. But the two-year reset, means that jesus it all happens now you know totally. yeah so you kind of go looking there um, yeah um so euro dollar is one of those places um right so I, I, basically, but basically what you're saying is there, there there's this um almost like an illegitimate um child factory going on in in europe where these little little dollars are spawning themselves and it's creating these these distortions that move around largely unmonitored and you, you feel that perhaps explains why we're getting asset price inflation and, and maybe even consumer inflation is, is that right not, not the consumer but the asset price inflation the asset price okay we, we've been left with the, the the worst combination of all worlds um, which is asset price inflation and wage price disinflation um you see that it's ripping the political economy apart because you know the the real folk the the gap between their income and what they and the assets that they can they they can acquire like the franchise that they can live live under is is getting pulled it's like a, a rug being pulled from their feet so that's not good the uh, the euro dollar system um I, I don't like thinking of it as illegitimate i think it's of it is very legitimate it's a system without regulation without right. a, a bank a regulate regulator oversight i think anything your regulator oversight just seems to add complexity it doesn't really seem to, to, to solve anything. You know, I'd, I'd remind everyone that Credit Suisse this year uh, went essentially bankrupt. Um, it, it was deemed to be one of those 50 or 60 systemically important banks. It was subject to far greater scrutiny by the regulator. Sure. Um, it had more demanding uh, reg, 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 regulatory ratios, if you will. Um, it went bankrupt despite the fact that <laughs> it was deemed to be safe on all those on those ratios, you know, so. Um, yeah. The, Euro dollar system is a system that I like because it's regulated by the uh, the confidence of your peer group. You know that 
everyone talks, you know, everyone like, sure, oh, sure. right. The guy I lent to him. So it's <laughs> like, like, the, like the free market is, is ruling in that space more, more so. And that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah. And, and we, we, um, so we saw back in 2008, um, you, you had bank spreads begin to, to widen, you know, yeah. when, um, now we've got this damn so so far thing, you know, uh, to trade euro dollars and and sh and, and um, short int uh, short sterling. These were interest rate contracts, which had it, you know it was the market's best guess of where rates would be three months forward, but it also embedded a credit risk for the counterparty. Okay, um, and and to the Fed's great horror, they cut rates to the floor, but these uh, bank lending ratios were actually going higher, and it was the credit because the banks didn't want to face each other. That was the Euro dollar system. That was banks saying, geez, like, you know, get me out of here. Um, and it's not, despite its name, it's not, it's not Eurocentric in terms of location. Um, arguably, I think the biggest dollar creating um, metropolitan in the, in the world is Tokyo, the Tokyo um, uh, right. city center banks. And there is a presumption that I have a presumption, rather, that the they finally went to, to the euro dollar, the window, if you will, you know, like the cashier. I mean, think of it as a pawn shop, and you go in, you're like, hey, hold on a second, you know, and like you boom onto the counter. You're like, I got a hundred trillion yen, risk free. I mean, negative yielding, Bank of Japan, crazy people, but you know, rock solid, current account surplus. Well, how many dollars would you give me for a hundred, you know, hundred uh, trillion yen? You know, like, wow, well, we'll give you a trillion dollars back, you know. Um, and why it typically goes into asset prices, it's, it's not given to entrepreneurs. It's not influencing wages directly mm. because it's a 24-hour lending cycle. Uh, you have to kind of go, they can call you every 24 hours. And say, you know what, it, you know, we're changing the terms. We want to change the collateral. We want whatever, you know. Um, and so, you, it's not the kind of lending uh, or borrowing that you would commit to uh, a twenty-year payback. You know, building a bridge, building another bridge in China. Right. That's not what yeah. you're doing. Yeah, you are like speculating. You're putting it into stocks, or you're giving it to a hedge fund, etc. It's very liquid, very now. And um, I'm just curious that. If you look at dollar yen um, and you look at it on 30, 40 year price ranges, such has been the, the impulse of the weakness of the yen the last two years, that is beginning to throw up the conjecture, the fantasy of the yen trading at 200, which would be you know 50% devaluation on where it was 18 months ago, or even 300. And so, you know, my job is to kind of try and work back from these fantastic, uh, fantastically crazy and scary scenarios and then kind of say how could that be what what would the manifestation of that be it, it might be that the large chinese banks followed their their customers into mainland china uh, mainland china was so consensual with its economic growth for the last 15 years so mainland china is always running a is a, it's structurally short the dollar you're an exporter you receive dollars you've yeah. got to hand those dollars back to the state you're sitting there with what I call red cabbage, but you know you want to sell goods overseas again. Maybe you need iron ore, you need oil, you need dollars, yeah. um, and so there's a whole intricate web of banking offshore, 
which facilitates you getting those dollars and that commercial trade happening. That's a good thing. Um, and I think the Chinese um, were aided and abetted by these large Japanese banks. They're sitting at home. No one loves them. No one wants to borrow from them. They're like, you know, let's 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 put it all on the house. Um, and so when you do the the conversion in the euro dollar system, you you're you're shorting the dollar. The US dollar. US dollar. And so on a kind of 24 hour rolling cycle, I kind of want to say that that short has been called somewhat and that squeezes the yen and it pushes up the value of the dollar versus others would argue, but um, others of a, of, of a more saner, calmer disposition, those that don't wear asset capitalist hats would tell you that uh, really the, the kind of 40% devaluation in the yen is more a function of the uh, the profound carry you know that if you're a domestic institution uh, you can you can borrow for minus 10 basis points right and, you know if, you, if you're willing to un run an, an fx position like buy you, know, you could buy us treasuries today and get 4.05 so you'd be getting 4.15 if you were buying at the two year you'd be getting you know five percent plus five and a half percent five point six percent they would say once eventually the Fed will narrow that those rates will come down, you know, there'll be a recession. And so the, the, the yen will appreciate once more versus the dollar. And we might find ourselves back at around 120, 125. Okay. Uh, that would be a more orthodox uh, version of where we are. But the, the fun, the juice, the convexities in the tail and, you know, tails are more interesting, you know. Yes, indeed. Now, the rest of this episode I'm going to share with you next week, remember, but you're more than welcome to check out the YouTube version for the extended episode right away. Now, if you found this episode a little bit tricky just to keep up with, don't worry, you're in good company here. And I've listened to this five times, so it's starting to get a lot easier. It's starting to make a lot more sense. So have another crack at it yourself. Make sure that you tune in next week for the next part. Today it was an alternative explanation, though to what really moves asset prices that includes the share market and the property market and even the crypto market. Next week, we're going to fold in interest rates as well. Jeff Schneider from the Euro Dollar University, George Gammon and Dr. Richard Werner, they all talk about this sort of topic around the Euro Dollar system a lot. And if you're looking for more information around how that all works, it's highly probable um, that they will have the answers. And what I've been getting out of this is that those who can maintain ownership of assets in the next bull run or when things kind of quote unquote get back to normal will probably benefit a lot from how this part, this murky part of the financial system actually works. It's not doing much for the everyday person though. And I've often been critical of central banks for assisting in widening the gap between the haves and the have nots. But now I'm wondering if it's more of a structural issue, more systemic than that. Why is that relevant? Well, while we're all looking for where central banks are setting interest rates, there's likely far bigger forces at work that most of us don't understand yet. So that's why I'm having this chat with Hugh Henry. And again, anyway, thanks again for listening in and I hope you have a fantastic week, everyone. Thanks for listening into the Everyday Investor Podcast. Like what you've heard, but you want more? Make sure that you've subscribed to our YouTube channel and subscribe to the Everyday Investor newsletter too. 
The links for everything are found in the show notes that you can access easily by swiping or tapping over the cover art in your podcast player. If you received value in some way, I'd love it if you could take the time to write a review wherever you listen to podcasts, share it with a friend, or think of our show partners where appropriate. Easy Crypto, the safe and easy way to buy and sell crypto in New Zealand. Gorilla Technology, increasing business success through innovative and strategic IT solutions. And Garon Co, financial advice, financial advice for everyday people building everyday wealth. Remember, some investments or strategies discussed on these episodes may result in financial loss. Be sure to do your own research and ideally seek qualified advice of your own before making investment decisions. Hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll catch you next time around.